Today we come to Luke chapter 8, verse 4, down to verse 15, which is known as the parable of the sower. Let me read this for us. This is what God's word says, beginning in Luke chapter 8, verse 4. And when a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, a sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it, and some fell on the rock. And as it grew up, it withered away, because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it, and choked it. And some fell into good soil, and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when his disciples asked him, What this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts, so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, Receive it with joy, but these have no roots. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart, and bear fruit with patience. Amen. Let's pray together. Gracious God, as we have come before your word, we ask that you would help us to come before it with this honest and good heart, in truth, in spirit, that you would minister your word into our hearts, plant it deeply within, and cause us to be conformed to it. We ask that you would be the one to preach and to speak to hearts this morning. That it would not be the voice of man, but Lord Jesus, that we, your sheep, might hear your voice. For your glory, for your sake, in your name we pray. Amen. Again, we come this morning to this well-known passage famously known as the parable of the sower. And it is such a significant teaching Of Jesus, that we find parallel accounts of it in both Matthew chapter 13 and Mark chapter 4. Now, before we dive into the parable itself, it's important for us to get a feel for the setting and context in which Jesus gives this parable, because that in and of itself will elucidate a lot for us when we understand why Jesus told this parable. What prompted him to suddenly speak this parable, or actually speak in any parable? At all, for that matter. Well, as we mentioned last week, Luke has been fastidious in recording for us the ever-growing crowds throughout his gospel account of Jesus' ministry. From the moment Jesus came onto the public spotlight in chapter 4, we've seen his popularity and fame rising continually with no end in sight. In fact, on this day, when Jesus taught this parable... Both Matthew and Mark record for us that Jesus didn't say these words inside a classroom, but it was actually outdoors 
at the Sea of Galilee. And the crowd that had gathered to hear Jesus was so enormous that they took up the entire shore. And so Jesus had to get on a boat and preach from the waters from a sufficient distance in order to sufficiently carry his voice to the full breadth of the people that had occupied the shoreline. And so, by all appearances, I mean, Jesus' ministry was tremendously successful, wasn't it? Look at how many followers he gained within just a couple years of public ministry. I mean, if a church plant had the crowds that Jesus had after just a few years, we'd all be quick to call it a success, wouldn't we? What, what if this church suddenly exploded in size such that by December we had 2,000 people? I don't know what we would do with all those people and how we would fit. All I know is I'm not doing three, four services every Sunday unless you want to see me drop dead in the middle of service number three. It's just, we're not doing that. But if that happened, if we had all those people, thousands of people suddenly, perhaps many of us would be enthused at how this church had grown so rapidly. Because that's our go-to metric in the modern Western era. Numbers, size, marketing, popularity, scalability. But for Jesus, when he saw the massive crowds that had grown in that short span of time, and he saw the thousands that followed him everywhere, he was not enthused. Rather, Jesus was concerned. Because he knew that appearances can be deceiving And that not everyone who followed him did so for the same reasons, for the right reason. Not everyone who said that they believed in him actually believed in him. You see, Jesus was not impressed by the quantity of his followers because he was concerned about the quality of them. And so as verse 4 says, It was when a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to him. So upon seeing this sheer quantity of enthusiastic followers, it was then that Jesus began to speak in this parable. Why? It was to filter out the crowds. To sift the true believers from the large crowd of many false believers. This is why Jesus began to speak in parables. You know, we tend to think that the purpose of his parables was just to give really memorable and insightful illustrations for the point he was trying to make. Now, this is not entirely wrong. There is an aspect of Jesus' parables where they function as earthly stories meant to illustrate heavenly realities. And of course, Jesus was the most wonderful teacher who regularly employed real-life examples and pictures to help explain complex spiritual doctrines. And that's what a good teacher does, right? He, He makes complex things simple to understand with pictures and examples. And so no doubt, Jesus's parables carry out the same function, and that's why they're so memorable, and we rightly love and cherish them. However, That is not the only purpose of his parables. In fact, it may not even be the primary purpose of parables. Because Jesus spoke in parables not only to reveal the truth of God's kingdom, but also to conceal it from those 
who are not actually seeking it in truth. In other words, Jesus used parables as a filtration mechanism to weed out the crowds because there was a twofold effect that his parables had a way of further attracting the truly convicted while at the same time further distancing away the merely casually interested. Now, how did speaking in parables accomplish this? Well, look at this parable that Jesus told in verses 4 to 8. Look, I know that we understand the meaning of it because Jesus explains it for us from verses 11 to 15, but that explanation was only given later in private. In other words, the main crowds only heard verses 4 through 8, the illustration without the explanation. And so put your feet in the shoes of that original audience there at the seashore in Galilee. And they came itching to hear some great news of how he's the Messiah who's come to overthrow the Roman Empire and, and bring back the monarchy and how he's come to bring your best life now. It's going to be wonderful and you'll have everything you ever wanted, whatever they were looking for. And when they get there and the crowd hushes down, all they hear from Jesus is, Good morning, everyone. Gather around. I want to tell you a little bit about a sower who went to scatter his seed everywhere. Some fell along the path. The others fell on the rock. Others fell among thorns. And they were no good. But some fell on good soil. And so he had a wonderful harvest. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Have a wonderful rest of your week. Huh? I mean, listen, when the crowds heard this, they did not understand what in the world Jesus was talking about because Jesus was intentionally speaking to them in a not understandable way. Because an illustration without its corresponding explanation is but an obfuscation, a, a riddle that hides its true meaning. Now, why would Jesus do such a thing? In fact, after this event, some of his disciples came up to ask him, what kind of sermon was that? I mean, Jesus, we had a great crowd today, 5,000. Last week it was 4,000. Can you go back to doing the things that you were doing last week? Because that got more people in. But, you know, you, you were a little bit more clear and straightforward. And I think the people like that kind of stuff, not this stuff that you're doing. And Jesus replied in verse 10, Listen, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others, they are in parables so that... Although they see, they may not see. Although they hear, they may not really hear and understand. This is a quote from Isaiah chapter 6, in which God commissions the prophet to preach to a people who had become so hardened in heart that they were utterly desensitized to spiritual truths. And so the people in Isaiah's day were so worldly-minded that God gave them over to their willful spiritual ignorance. And Jesus says that's the exact same thing going on with these crowds here. And it's for this reason that I am speaking in parables. Because you see, by speaking in parables, Jesus was no longer teaching the truth of his kingdom in explicit statements to the whole crowd. Rather, these truths were now being delivered only implicitly wrapped in the cloak of imagery, such that its meaning could only be accessed 
if one comes to Jesus hungering for true understanding. And that's exactly what happened on this day, wasn't it? The whole crowd of thousands heard the spiel about the day in the life of a farmer sowing his seed and had no idea what he was talking about. And after the main exhibition was over, they all went home, but there were only some who stayed back to ask Jesus what this all meant. The vast majority went home confused, but ultimately kind of disappointed that this Jesus had not exactly talked about the things that they thought they would hear. They may have been perplexed by the parable, but in the end, they went back to their normal routine lives, business as usual, because in the end, they were just casual followers of Jesus. They were interested in him for merely the outward signs that they witnessed, his impressive miracles, healings, and all the cool things that they were entertained by. And so by speaking in parables, Jesus was effectively saying, I know that you're interested in only the outward signs and not the inward substance. And so Jesus was giving them over to their carnal worldly desires by speaking only in these outward signs of parabolic imagery and withholding the true inward substance of the heavenly realities about his kingdom. In other words, Jesus was saying, you care only for the shallow surface? I'll give you only the shallow surface. And those who did not have ears to hear, those whose hearts were hardened in unbelief, they walked away in the end. You see, Jesus employed parables to filter out the crowds by concealing explicit teachings concerning the mysteries of his kingdom. But at the same time, there were some who by the grace of God when they heard these parables, they responded in their hearts by saying, I don't understand what this means, but I must understand it. I've seen this man heal the sick, command demons out of people. I've seen his heavenly authority, and I believe him to be the Son of God who has authority to forgive sins. And so if that is the case, then it is of utmost importance that I understand what he is communicating. This is the most important thing I can do today. You see, this is the heart that Jesus was filtering unto himself. As Mark tells us in his parallel account, in verse 10 of chapter 4, it says that later when Jesus was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him what all this meant. See, it wasn't just the twelve that were there, but there were other true disciples within that crowd who remained with the twelve after the vast majority of the crowds had dispersed. And Jesus said, to you guys has been given the secrets of the kingdom of God. Why? Because they evidently hungered for the kingdom. They thirsted for the eternal mysteries of God. You see, and Jesus never, ever, ever withholds understanding and illumination from those who truly seek it. The problem is that many claim to seek Jesus, but they don't actually want Jesus and his kingdom because they don't actually want Jesus to be their king. 
and to rule over them. That's what kingdom means. It means Jesus' reign. The kingdom of God is not first and foremost a locale, a citadel, but it is first and foremost the reign of God over the hearts of men. And that's what many don't want. But this is what Jesus was filtering out from the vast multitudes. He's not interested in amassing a large quantity of followers. Instead, he is interested in the purity of those who claim to believe in him. And so his parables are intended to sift between the casually listening and the seriously hungering. And each one of us this morning needs to examine our own hearts honestly before God. To which group do we belong? Now, this is actually not a very easy question to answer. Because, believe it or not, we are not the best person to honestly evaluate ourselves. Neither is the people around you. But the point is that we can deceive ourselves. As Jeremiah 79 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Implying, not even I myself. But verse 10 says, the Lord, I the Lord search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways. And so the only honest, true self-examination is that which is done by the help of God's Spirit who searches us through His Word. And that's what this particular parable here is for. The parable of a sower is considered the mother of all parables because its very content is a filtering grid for our souls. It is designed to search our hearts down to every crevice of the secrecy of our thoughts. Jesus begins his explanation by saying in verse 11, the seed represents the word of God, which is preached and and scattered all over. And the key point of this parable is on what terrain the seed falls, namely what kind of heart the word of God comes into contact with and how that heart responds to the word. And what's remarkable about this parable and its soul-searching power is the fact that it is incredibly nuanced. You'll notice that as Jesus explains the meaning of this parable, he gives not two categories of how somebody responds to the word, but four. And of those four, only one is the true response of genuine saving faith, the good soil into which the seed of God's word has been deeply planted. But this means that there are three kinds of responses to God's word that are distinct from each other and that all appear to be substantially different. But in the end, they are all of the same substance of actually rejecting God's word. Now, the first category is the simplest to understand. It's the most obvious It is the seed that is sown along the path and is trampled underfoot and devoured by the words. And this, Jesus says, is representative of blatant open rejection of the word of God. Verse 12, the ones along the path are those who have heard 
then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And so this first group are those who immediately, openly refuse the gospel and say no thank you to Jesus. This is the classic unbeliever who doesn't profess Christ at all. Now, although this is the simplest category, there is an important detail for us to learn from because Jesus makes it clear that when a heart responds to the word in open unbelief, the devil is actively at work to snatch away the word. You know, so often we neglect the reality that this world presently, right now, as I speak, and even all of human history, has been actively engaged in a fierce, invisible, spiritual warfare, where the forces of darkness are constantly mobilized to assault the advancement of God's kingdom. Now, of course, nothing will thwart God's ultimate sovereign purpose and will, but the default state and condition of this fallen world is that it is blind to God's truth and dead in sin because they are enslaved to the devil's active lies. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, the God of this world, meaning the prince of the power of the air, namely the devil, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And so what this tells us is that we must remember that if we are to win souls to Christ, it is utterly futile apart from total dependence on the regenerating power of God's Spirit. In other words, we must preach to souls and pray for souls. Evangelism without prayer is like going into battle without a sword, because a sword is the sword of the Spirit, as Ephesians 6.17 says. And so this is the first category, outright open rejection of God's word. But things start to get interesting with the second category, the seed that fell on the rock, which represents a superficial enthusiasm with all the visible signs of passion and devotion. I mean, it looks really great and maybe even encouraging on the outside. But look at what Jesus says in verse 13. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. There's there's even joy, emotion, passion, excitement. But these have no root. They believe for a while and in time of testing, fall away. There was never any deep root. It never penetrated deep within, but only grazed a shallow layer. This teaches us something important. Emotional excitement and enthusiasm, even for the things of Christ, is not an infallible indicator of the genuineness of one's salvation. Now listen, passion is good, okay? In fact, many Christians today lack passion, and I wonder if there's any love for Christ at all. But emotions are good. I'm a very emotional person, to be honest with you. The emotions are, are vital expressions, but only insofar as they are organic expressions of true substance within. Passion is good, but passion alone does not necessarily indicate true regeneration because anyone can be stimulated and excited even about God 
given the right circumstances and environment. But what does Jesus say is the thing that causes the initial excitement to fade? A time of testing. When circumstances are no longer as favorable, when the environment that was conducive to spiritual adrenaline is suddenly taken away. You know, when I think about this category, I can't help but be burdened by the thought of just how many college students I have seen who join a campus ministry and they're, they're enthralled by the festivities and, and they're energized by the lively culture of, of young Christian community and, and they invest all their years even serving in the ministry, serving as upperclassmen leaders. They even go on mission trips over the summer to some third world country and have a nice Facebook profile picture to show for it. But when graduation comes and this Christian Disneyland is suddenly gone and disappears, so does their initial vestige of faith with it. Nothing against college campus ministries. They're they're blessings to be sure. But the point is that it is very possible, if not very common, for a young man or woman to be impassioned by such an environment and even display all the outward signs of fervent devotion. But in due time, those external things fade away and it is revealed that there was never an underlying internal substance. And again, I say with sadness that I've seen countless students, many of my contemporaries, who once exhibited the mark of sacrificial passion and energy, and yet years later, they looked like a completely different person who has nothing to do with Christ. It's really sad. And hence all the more the importance of church membership so that upon graduation that they do not have their whole Christian community taken away from them, but they remain in a healthy church with faithful brothers and sisters surrounding them. And if I can just say, it also really doesn't help that the bread and butter of so many ministries and churches is not the sound preaching of the word, but rather the the, the popular, trendy, contemporary Christian music and the lavish worship bands. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with contemporary music in and of itself. There, There are good modern worship songs and hymns, some of which we sing here with great joy. But I'm talking about the cool, trendy, heavily marketed praise bands whose songs have very little doctrinal substance and rich theology in the lyrics, and in its place are a bunch of emotional buzzwords and, and flowery language that, that, that are really there more for decoration because truth be told, the real substance is the catchy tunes and the instrumentals and the good-looking guys and gals that are part of the band. And these sparkly things do a lot to incite the emotional response of people but they do little to deeply implant the eternal truths of God into the precious congregation. I mean, just compare one of the popular worship songs when I was a kid. Fire fall down, fire fall down, on us we pray. Fire fall down, fire fall down, on us we pray. 
repeat 38 times for the next 20 minutes. <sighs> Look, if you knew your Bible, you would say, no, 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 fire, please don't fall down because that's not a good thing. And by the way, Pentecost doesn't count because it is not tongues of fire, it's tongues as of fire, probably describing how they spread like fire. But compare that nonsense with let all mortal flesh keep silence and with fear and trembling stand. Ponder nothing earthly minded for with blessing in his hand Christ our God to earth descendeth our full homage to demand. At his feet the six-winged seraph cherubim with sleepless eye Veil their faces to the presence, as with ceaseless voice they cry, Alleluia, 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 Lord Most High. A big difference, isn't it? And how it takes us into the depths of the majesty of God as revealed in His Word. Suffice to say, for this second category, the warning is this, outward displays of extravagant emotion are not foolproof evidence of true conversion. Jesus tells us that he is fully aware that these things can be mimicked and fabricated, whether consciously or subconsciously. And time will tell as to who has truly received his word. Now, perhaps thus far, many of us are feeling safe. We're not number one because we profess Christ. And for some of us, we'd even say with confidence, we're not number two because we've been going at this thing for a while now. And many years have passed and we're still here. But I imagine that for many of us, this third category is the pressure point that Jesus wants to press this morning. And given the environment in which we live, we are probably most in danger of falling into this third category, myself included. Because this third group is the seed that fell among the thorns, which represents those who seem to have responded favorably to the gospel, have expressed a desire to follow Jesus. Apparently there's some vestige of growth even, but there is a competing desire that coexists and ultimately dominates that person's heart such that the word of God never bears true fruit. As Jesus explains in verse 14, and as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life and their fruit does not mature. What, what are the thorns? that choke those who fall in this category? The cares and riches and pleasures of life. Jesus is talking about a worldly attachment, being in love with the things of this world. Now notice how he doesn't say that this person falls away, unlike the previous category, the rocks, where after some time of testing, they fall away. By all appearances, this person remains in the church and maybe will continue to remain there for the rest of their lives. But in the secrecy of their hearts, they are spiritually choked because they love this world too much. 
they do not heed the warnings of the Apostle John, who writes in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, Do not love the world or the things in this world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away. It's all passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now listen, there's nothing wrong with the basic cares of this life. Food, drink, clothing, family. Those are essential. There's nothing even wrong with enjoying the good things of this world, whether it be hobbies, vacations, what have you. These are blessings from God. We're not called to be ascetic monks who deprive ourselves of every enjoyable thing on earth. We need to be balanced with 1 Timothy 4.4, which tells us that everything is to be received and enjoyed with thanksgiving to God. And God is glorified when we enjoy His blessings, giving thanks and praise ultimately to Him. And so look, it's not that the things of life are of no importance but it's that they are not to be of ultimate importance. And especially in a nice, comfortable place like the Bay Area, where you have everything that you need, how many self-deceived Christians are there who are sitting in the pews, who are secretly living for the comforts and luxuries of this world as if they are of ultimate importance. And in God's eyes, He sees that they are not truly Christians, born again. You see, when we make good things the ultimate things, that's when they become bad things because we have made an idol out of them. And boy, do we have a knack for taking the good things that God gives to us and bowing down to them in adoration and worship. Marriage, children, Grandchildren, career, financial security, education, wealth, material possessions, luxuries, hobbies, enjoyments. These are all gifts from God, stewarded unto us. But we have a sinful tendency to seize them for ourselves as though they are ultimately ours and not God's, who has the right to give them to us and has the right to take them away from us as he sees fit. You see, we all struggle with idolatry. It is the lust of our flesh that we must continually put to death by the Spirit who reminds us through his word of how much better are the eternal promises of God that will never pass away unlike this temporal world. We all struggle with idolatry. And so what's the difference between a genuine Christian struggle with it and a counterfeit Christian who is being choked by it. What Jesus tells us, they don't bear fruit. They're not growing in Christ. Their whole life is just one spiritual plateau, a constant stagnation. They are spiritually the same five years ago as they are today. For all their years of supposedly walking with Christ, they have not really grown in love for Him, the counterpart of which is also to inevitably grow increasingly out of love 
for the things of this world. But instead, they live for the things of this world. That's their highest joy and occupation of their hearts. How they can maximize their fill of enjoyment on this earth before they are forced to leave. As though eternity were not real. They're just kind of the same, the same monotonous, nominal Christian doing the same weekly church routine as five years ago, ten years ago, twenty years ago. And a big part of the stagnation is that there is no repentance in their heart. Because after all, that's what repentance is. Change. Turning from sin continually. Pursuing Christ. You see, the true believer is quick to admit that they struggle with idolatry. And they are each day, by God's help and mercy, shedding themselves of this fleshly desire. It's not always pretty. But by God's grace, they are indeed gradually growing over time in the purity of their devotion to God. And so they grow to better discern their own deceitful hearts. And there is an increasing holy suspicion of their hidden fleshly motives. And thus there is a growing sense of their helplessness. And thus, an absolute dependence on God's sanctifying grace. But the spiritually choked, they are generally loath to admit that they have a problem with idolatry. They are being seduced by a love for this world, but they leave that lust unchecked, even justifying at times when confronted with it. And hence, they do not bear the fruit of true repentance and faith in Christ. They are in the world and they are still of the world. Beloved, if this is you, and only God knows, and you need to be honest with yourself and be honest with God for your sake, take Jesus' warning seriously and repent. The worst thing that can happen to you is for you to remain in your self-deception. I don't care how long you've been going to church. Let God's word search you and reveal to you the depths of your heart that even you are unable to discern accurately and objectively. You see, these are the three categories of an empty response to the word of God. And again, there are three of them, not one. I think many times... We like to simplistically assume that there are only one of two options. Category number one, either blatantly reject Christ, or category number four, affirm Christ to whatever degree. And we look at number one and we say, oh, we're definitely not that. And so by simple process of illumination, we assume that we are number four. But Jesus shows us that he knows and he sees everything. And that he cannot be fooled because he sees through all outward appearances and those who have truly received his word are those in whom the word has implanted deep within past the superficial surface level external shape of religion notice how in the parable different prepositions are used if you look in verse 5 jesus says some fell along the path some fell on the rock, some fell among the thorns, but these fell into the good soil. The word actually penetrates the heart and brings about true conviction and repentance and change. 
And so Jesus explains in verse 15, as for that in the good soil, there are those who hearing the word hold fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. Unlike the superficial enthusiast, this person holds fast to the word and bears fruit in patience with longevity. Unlike the worldly idolater, this person holds fast in honest truth and grows and yields a hundredfold over time rather than stagnating and never bearing fruit, being choked by the thorns. This is not a perfect Christian. There is no such thing. But this is the one who is growing and being perfected by God through all the ups and downs as they actively strive to grow in sanctification. Now, I know that this parable is a weighty one that calls us to solemn self-examination. And that's a good thing. It's a healthy thing. Every one of us should take the time, not just this morning, but every day of our lives, to be honest before God and carefully examine to which category we belong. These are like guardrails at the edge of a cliff. And many times it's good for us to notice the guardrails so that we learn to stay as far away from them as possible for our safety and good. And so this is a healthy dose of fear and trembling by which we're called to work out our salvation, as Philippians 2.12 says. But can I leave you with this encouragement that is wonderfully implied by this parable? For all the true believers in this room, if the dangers of this first three categories are a hardened heart, a falling away because of trials, and a worldly attachment, then as you look at your life and see the course of it and how things have turned out, can you see ways in which God has brought things about to keep you from these dangers? Can you see how God First of all, by His grace, has supernaturally implanted the Word in your heart, and you know it, because He overrode your stubborn hostility to Him, and He opened your eyes to see the glory of Christ in the Gospel. But then can you see how God has brought various trials in your life, some consisting of great sorrows and painful circumstances, so that He might prove Not to himself, because he already knows, but so that he might prove to you the authenticity of the faith that he has given to you. To show that your devotion to Christ was not because of easy, conducive circumstances, but in fact he brought you through painful, difficult ones to refine your little faith in him to be precious as gold. And despite all the tears, and I know many of you have gone through things and you have shed many tears, but despite all of them, He sustained your weak, feeble faith to still hold fast to Him such that you are here today where you are. Can you see how God has taken away things from you that are not bad things, but even good things, wonderful things, Loved ones, parents, spouse, a healthy marriage, children, 
taking away health, security. And maybe when it was all happening, you had no idea, you couldn't understand why God would do such a thing to not take away a bad thing, but to take away a good thing. But can you see how the Lord, in His unimaginable love for you, sometimes takes away worldly comforts and even good blessings of this world to purify your faith and protect you from the snares of worldly infatuation. Because you see, this parable tells us that God is the divine sower who sows the seed of His Word. But also, elsewhere in Scripture, namely in John chapter 15, God also reveals Himself to be Not only the divine sower, but the divine gardener, the vine dresser who takes care of the plants that he has brought to growth. Who rejoices over each little branch that he has brought forth to life from that seed that was sown. And is at work to intimately care for them, pruning them, snipping away the residue so as to lovingly nurture their growth. It hurts. But it is some of the strongest evidences of the Father's unchanging and intimate love for us. Church, for all the spiritual perils that we are confronted with by the parable of the sower, we must not forget the grace of God that is at work within us to protect us from these perils. And so then let us entrust ourselves to the will and purpose of our gracious God and joyfully submit ourselves to the authority of His loving Word so that we might bear its fruit in our lives. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You that even through all the warnings of Scripture, You never leave us without Your promises to which the whole counsel of your word testifies. Lord, help us to be strengthened by it and by your grace enable us to examine ourselves in honesty and in truth and that if there is any sin in us that you would compel us to repentance and that you would purify us and make us the holy people that you have called us to be through the holy seed that you have planted within For your glory we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.